0: It's Wednesday, January 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Some good news when it comes to jobs and the pandemic. Texas, Arizona, Idaho, and Utah have recovered all the jobs they lost since the start of the pandemic, and another dozen states could hit that mark by the middle of this year. A lot of this was driven by population growth due to companies and workers shifting away from coastal cities. Brian Mena, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, for those working remotely, the sick day may be gone. As the Omicron variant continues to cause disruptions, some remote workers are experiencing mild symptoms and are opting to work through it. Some figure that since they're not in the office posing a risk to others, they are taking the posture of, if I can work, I'll work. Catherine Dill, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for Americans' complicated relationship with taking time off. Finally, crime tourists have been targeting wealthy Asian and Middle Eastern residents in the D.C. area. Law enforcement experts say that cells of professional burglars are entering the country, targeting residents, and then moving on to another city or state to steal more. Justin Juvenal, justice reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the wave of crime tourists. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in. In
1: that election, I ran on having built a business and I committed to shrink a government and grow an economy. And together we have done just
0: that. Joining us now is Brian Menna, reporter at the wall street journal. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Great to be here. I want to talk about some good economic news. There are four States so far that have kind of recovered all of those job losses that they had when the pandemic started we're looking at Texas and Arizona, Idaho and Utah recovering a lot of those jobs. We're expecting to see more states get to those pre-pandemic levels by the middle of this year. So good news there. And we're looking at, you know, things like population growth, the early shifts by the businesses, the, you know, from pandemic regulations, kind of just getting them ahead of the curve to really recoup those losses. So Brian, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing?
2: So the main thing has to do is population growth which had been, been going on even before the pandemic in Arizona and Texas. And so uh, that's the main reason there because, uh, you know, people have been relocating to those places from expensive coastal cities like Los Angeles, New York, and so they go to maybe Phoenix or Dallas. And so people are taking jobs there, and so that drives employment growth. Uh, but there's also, um, it also varies by sector and by state as well. For example, in Arizona, transportation and warehousing are growing sectors. And in Texas, the tech has been booming there. You know, we've heard of Oracle, uh, Tesla relocating their headquarters to Austin. So there's definitely um, sectors that have a lot to do with it, but it's not as clear cut. Because, for example, you know, Hawaii is still grappling with lower participation rate, a high unemployment rate, and as we know, Hawaii is relying on tourism. But at the same time, Florida is also relying on tourism as well, and so that economy has been more resilient. So the other factor has to do with pandemic restrictions, and so. We all know that Republican governments are more resistant to strict measures to mitigate COVID. And so this helps uh, businesses stay open. And so that's another main factor. You, so you have population growth, less restrictions on businesses, and what's going on with specific sectors. And so that's the overall gist of what's going on in those four states that have already uh, gone through that hurdle. There are a couple of other states that are on the precipice, like Montana and Nebraska. And so the new data comes out this Friday, and so we'll we'll know if more states join that club.
0: A little bit more on the population growth and right and the shifts that is caused there. One of the experts you spoke to said that they expect a third of the states to return to their pre-pandemic levels by the middle of this year. California and states in the Northeast are lagging. So to your point, right, uh, leaving those coastal areas, moving to these other states really helped them out. But now we see these coastal states uh, uh, lagging on all the, on all of this.
2: So Texas and Arizona are growing at the expense of California and New York. And uh, I remember when Oracle announced that it would relocate to uh, Austin, its headquarters. uh, You know, a lot of business owners in Silicon Valley were saying, you know, this is a reckoning. You know, we need to figure out how we can be business friendly because, you know, again, these companies and in addition to that, people are relocating to uh, these other states. And they do this because these states have a lower cost of living. And so uh, that's good for a company's employees, uh, lower cost of living, uh, high quality of life. And so, uh, yeah, those are just some of the reasons why people relocate uh, in addition to the companies.
0: And, you know, despite these states kind of recovering some of those job losses, there's still a ton of job openings out there. And even some of these states are struggling to find workers to fill those spots that are open. Uh, You talked to some people in the restaurant industries out there who we know We're taking huge hits throughout the pandemic, but they're still having trouble finding people, even construction crews are finding it difficult to retain and get more people.
2: Yeah, yeah. Everyone's showing the quit rate. It's more pronounced than others. But overall, a lot of industries are dealing with workers quitting. And as you know, workers are quitting for better opportunities. They want better wages. Uh, They want to do remote work. And... When people can work remotely, uh, they don't have to live in San Francisco or New York City. Uh, they can move somewhere. And I, I did another story about job openings, uh, how quits spread record highs. And one business owner in New York City told me that, you know, uh, shed workers quit and say they're moving to Arizona or Colorado. No notice. And so um, definitely a lot of of parts as far as what people want to do as a job and where they want to live. And so uh, I, we'll, we'll keep seeing more of that throughout this year.
0: Brian Mena, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much.
3: Bye-bye. There's not much to do when you're an adult who's maybe, you know, isolated in part of your house, away from your kids or your family. Um, Some people chose to work. Others felt pressure. And of course, a lot of employers, as you said, are facing worker shortages. So the incentive to continue plugging
0: away is high. Joining us now is Catherine Dill, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. My pleasure. Let's talk about the sick day. It seems to be going by the wayside now, at least for remote workers in some cases. We're seeing all the disruptions, obviously, that's going on because of COVID-19 with this Omicron variant. What we're seeing is a, a lot of more milder infections, thankfully. You know, that's not across the board, but that's what we're finding out uh, is happening a lot of times and uh, if you're working from home you know you're obviously already away from the office you don't have to worry about infecting coworkers, things like that so a lot of people are opting to just say hey you know it's not so bad I'll work through the day or even managers facing shortages are even asking their employees if you can work if you're not so sick you know maybe maybe hop on a few calls or a few meetings or something so Catherine tell us uh, what's going on with the sick day right now.
3: Certainly well this thing we were seeing a little bit of before the pandemic, folks had a few more options for if they were sick and it gave them a little bit of pause to think about coming in. And, you know, everybody's had that experience of sitting next to the person who's just like hacking away (laughs) during the workday at their desk, but, you know, they're putting in their time. And so this was changing a little bit before the pandemic, but then with the onset of, of COVID, calling your boss and saying, I've tested positive for COVID was a way for some workers to actually be able to check out. Certainly, they were also feeling sick. But it was a way for folks to say, you know, like, I have to go back to bed. I have to rest. I need a sick day. With Omicron, what we're seeing is that lots of people are sick at the same time right now because of the extremely high case count. But many people, because of rising vaccination rates and boosters, are experiencing much, much milder cases. And that can still mean you feel ill, but it's not necessarily debilitating. And so we see lots of folks choosing to work through the day. You know, a few people we talked to said, there's not much to do when you're an adult who's maybe, you know, isolated in part of your house away from your kids or your family. Um, Some people chose to work, others felt pressure. And of course, a lot of employers, as you said, are facing worker shortages. So the incentive to continue plugging away is high.
0: Now, we've talked a lot about this for a long time now. Americans have this weird relationship with working, uh, you know, becomes people identities. You feel like you have to work all the time. You know, this compared to other countries, let's say. And the Americans are notorious for not taking time off. I mean, I think uh, some of the stats that we have, a quarter of annual paid time off was left on the table for a lot of Americans. Sick days, too. Just people aren't taking all the available sick time that they have. And this is kind of a pre-pandemic thing, right? People would often just go to work even though they had a mild cold or something and just work through it. But this is that complicated relationship that we have with taking time off.
3: You know, as you said, this is something that Americans are known for being really bad at. And it's true across the board on types of paid time off. You know, as you said, like Americans left a lot of vacation time on the table even before the pandemic. And certainly in 2020, we saw even more vacation go unused because there was also the thinking about like, well, what am I? I'm not supposed to go anywhere or do anything. It's not safe. So what am I going to do with this time off? But it's true also with sick time. We see Americans sort of reluctant to take discrete days that they have that are set aside for illness when they need them. I should caveat this by saying that lots of Americans do not receive paid sick days. So we are talking about folks who have the option and just aren't taking it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an important distinction, right? People who have the option of having the paid sick time, people who have the option of remote work. You know, we there's a lot of uh, yeah. uh, people that don't have that luxury, obviously. And if they get sick, you know, the, the way current rules are set up, you know, you have to stay away from people so you don't get others infected. So definitely, you know, a very specific thing we're talking about. But what do uh, doctors and health experts say about even working at home while you're sick? I mean, you might not feel so bad, but the body does still need to rest, things like that.
3: Yes, exactly. You know, the sense is, if this is something that's going to help you deal with, you know, if you feel well enough that working seems like an option that will help you fill your time while you're sitting out a, a quarantine... Fine. But you do need time to recover, especially with some of like the Omicron variant, you know, we're seeing symptoms manifest sort of differently in different people. And the onset sometimes is a little bit later for some people. And so the medical consensus does seem to be, you know, like you need the time, you need the time to rest and recover. That being said, we talked to a lot of workers who felt that they had flexibility. You know, they could say, I got up in the morning and I felt pretty good. So I sent, you know, I sent some emails. Maybe I hopped on a call, maybe I got a few things done. But then as my energy started to flag or I got dizzy or something like that, I just took a nap or, you know, I went to bed for the
0: rest of the day or I I had a rest
3: and so we we see we see workers taking advantage of that sort of new quote-unquote flexibility around this yeah. too
0: and that's such an important thing right because what if people are relying on you then mid-day you do feel bad you know then it just causes all these other problems it's like well you should have took the sick day to begin with and, and you know you spoke to a, a teacher a substitute teacher um who said hey we went to remote learning i was sick i said let's do the classes anyways we're remote And uh, even by the end of his uh, session, you know, he said he was falling asleep on camera almost. So it still could be, you know, uh, cause an issue with trying to work through the day without having to take the sick time.
3: It's not ideal. Certainly, you know, this, this flexibility is more available to some workers than others. So like if you have an office job and some autonomy and you can sort of block out your time with things like sending emails or dipping in and out of a meeting or doing a quick check-in or something like that, this is going to work for you a lot better than for someone like the example in the story that the substitute teacher who was worried there wouldn't be anyone even to replace him and needed he needed to be on Zoom all day teaching classes that flexibility is not going to be available to him in the way it would be to somebody with a different job.
0: Catherine Dill, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks.
1: And it appears that these burglars were able to make off with millions of dollars worth of stuff in all of these various states before they were actually captured roughly two years after the spree began joining
0: us now is justin juvenal justice reporter at the washington post thanks for joining us justin
1: thanks for having me on
0: let's talk about a, an interesting story you wrote up about crime tourists so there's been uh, investigations going on for a long time right now and this uh, particular story has to do with international gangs not necessarily gangs but uh, <laughs> uh, burglars Targeting D.C. area residents, wealthy Asian residents and Middle Eastern residents, they were able to take about a a few million dollars. It was very tough for detectives to keep up with them because they're so mobile. They get into the country, they attack one neighborhood, then move to another state and do the same rinse repeat. So, Justin, tell us a little bit more about these crime tourists.
1: This all began back in late 2018, when police in the suburbs of D.C. started noticing these burglaries that fit a particular pattern. They would see that the burglars were targeting the homes of Asian and Middle Eastern families. They would break out a back door or window and they would make off with jewelry and other expensive luxury goods, but they would leave behind electronics and other stuff that might be valuable. So this went on for almost two years, and they were eventually able to realize that what was going on is the burglars were rings of folks from mostly Colombia who had traveled to the United States and gotten into the country illegally on the express purpose of trying to rob these homes. These folks set up bases in particular states. In this particular case, there was a group in Georgia and a group in Texas And then once they're here, they travel around from state to state committing burglaries or targeting jewelry salesmen or even targeting jewelry stores. There's a number of different varieties of or flavors of these uh, burglars. In this particular case, the investigators quickly realized they weren't just dealing with burglaries in the D.C. area. They connected this particular ring to burglaries in Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. And it appears that these burglars were able to make off with millions of dollars worth of stuff in all of these various states before they were actually captured, roughly two years after the spree began.
0: In this particular case, I guess they were uh, responsible for more than 50 burglaries and about $2 million in losses, uh, you know, from those thefts. And what they had kind of found was this, uh, uh, you mentioned the article, the criminal sweet spot. So, You know, the bail is set pretty low for nonviolent property offenses, which a lot of this stuff is, you know, unless there's other circumstances that are happening. So, you know, let's say they do get caught evenly. They'll post bail and then, boom, they're on to the next city, state or whatever. So in that sense, just even getting caught wasn't a big deterrent.
1: Yeah, they did find this criminal sweet spot. So in most areas, if you're caught for a nonviolent offense like burglary, you know, your bond is pretty low you can go to a bail bondsman or put up the cash yourself and get out. And what these guys figured out is they would put a bond and because they had no particular ties to any particular location in the U.S., as soon as they were caught or arrested for a particular burglary charge, they would post bond and then skip town and go on to the next offense. The other aspect of this is that each of these burglaries in and of itself is not a particular serious crime. The federal authorities have bigger fish to fry in most cases. They're dealing with violent gangs. They're dealing with human trafficking. And so these kind of crimes rarely rise to the level of federal authorities getting involved. So on the one hand, you had these guys getting bond and leaving town and skipping town on these charges in local jurisdictions. And then none of these cases really raised the interest of federal authorities who just you know had, had bigger crimes to deal with. So What they found and what the FBI has told me is that a lot of these rings are basically operating with impunity because no one is really prosecuting them and they can continue their crimes for a long period of time without really getting stopped.
0: Yeah, and crime on multiple levels, right? So there's also the immigration aspect of this. As you mentioned, a lot of these guys were from Colombia, but they're coming from Chile also. And, you know, they're getting false documents. They're even saying that they could be Puerto Rican because they have U.S. citizenship. So, uh, you know, they're fudging a lot of that stuff too. And uh, so the immigration aspect is another big part of it.
1: Yeah, there's actually a pretty big immigration aspect to it. The authorities have seen a large increase in uh, Chilean crime tourists in recent years. And they attribute that to this program that Chile was accepted into back, I think, in 2014. Basically, uh, it's a program that allows about 40 countries around the globe to get pre-screened for tourist visas. And folks that are pre-screened for these tourist visas don't have to go through the same level of checks and investigation that someone would have to undergo if they weren't part of the program. And uh, these crime tourists figure that out from Chile. And so what they were doing is enrolling in this special visa program that's only open to 40 countries. And the authorities would not do the same level of investigation of these guys as they would people who are applying for normal visas. And they were able to get into the country and, and commit these crimes. Some of these folks were heading right back to Chile or Colombia or wherever they were coming from. But some of them were actually trying to settle down in the United States. And some of them, they have fraudulent, sometimes very good fraudulent Puerto Rican documents made. And the, the whole idea behind the Puerto Rican documents is that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. So if you get caught and you say that you're a Puerto Rican, you have... Fairly good-looking documents, you know, you would uh, perhaps escape the yeah. scrutiny of immigration authorities.
0: Justin Juvenal, Justice Report at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod, on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.